Welcome to The Grid, sponsored by PokerStars. I am your host, Jennifer Shahadi, and we'll be taking a 13 by 13 episode journey through every possible No Limit Hold'em hand, 169 hands in total, from aces to seven deuce offsuit. Each episode, I'll interview another top poker player or personality about their hand. Once a combo is taken, it's gone. So this podcast will become progressively more difficult as hands like ace-king are removed from the grid. Whether you spend hours poring over grids as you study poker, love to listen to hand history pods while grinding cash, or are just interested in absurd scavenger hunts, we're gonna have some fun. You got the cards, dealer, I'm feeling it hit me. Yeah, I got swagger, they see me, see me strutting. It's Jennifer Shahadi. Welcome back to The Grid. So it's the birthday of Chess Queens. My new book that intertwines my own coming of age story through chess, the great women of the game, the real women, and the ways that gender diversity can make games better and your life better too. To celebrate, I have a special episode that dives into some of the ways that poker influenced my book because it really did change so much about the way I see chess myself and the world. So in this episode, I'm gonna read some highlights from the book, especially when poker is mentioned, and then elaborate on them a little bit from a poker player's perspective, give you a little bit of a behind the scenes extra context. Of course, if you like what you hear, I narrate the entire book on audiobook, which is available now. That link is in the show notes, as well as all of the other ways you can order it. I really appreciate your support if you wanna find out more about me and of course all the other great women of the game. So let's dig in with the introduction where I talk about why I changed the book's title in this new edition. Chess Queens has a precursor, Chess Bitch. I wrote that earlier version of the book in 2005, just after I had won my second US Women's Chess Championship. On a bus in Atlantic City, I told my dad that the racy title of my first book aggravated some chess fans. It was even censored on many platforms, including the New York Times. My dad thought for a minute and then said, I should rename it Checkmate Asshole. Chess Bitch was a fitting title at the time. I wrote about things in the chess world that were unfair and sexist, but that I sometimes felt too agreeable to shout out. The title was my call to action, a reminder to tap into my own rage. So a little more context into why I really changed the title. Well, another big reason is that it's so important for me to get more girls into the game, but girls don't really buy chess books. Their parents do. And so Chess Bitch certainly cut me off from a lot of that market, which is really a shame because there's a lot of progressive ideas in the book that... I think would help girls, whether they stay with chess or move on to some other field, and not just girls, of course, people of all genders can get a lot from it. I think having a more neutral title just allows more people in. And also literally, it allows more people in because I'm going to tell you spam filters, they do not jive with the word bitch, even if it is the title of your book. A lot of poker companies actually have similar problems because the world poker is often caught by the spam filters, even if it's for a completely legitimate promotion or book or tournament series. Another way that AI can affect our game. Let's move on to the second part of all that. 
about aggression and why Chespich was a great spirit to the book, and it's kind of like the soul, even if it's no longer called that, is the point that I do tend to be a pretty agreeable in person. Friendly, nice, people have called me that, sweet. But when we want to affect change, those words that are so good for cocktail parties and for personal interactions can actually become negatives because it means that maybe we won't point out if something unacceptable happens, if there's something that needs to change in the sport, transphobia, sexism, sexualization of kids. I mean, all these things, you know, you need to be bitchy about, you need to be angry about. So that's why I called it chess bitch when I originally wrote it. Because if I was on the fence, should I call this out? Should I take this risk in writing about that? Well, the answer is right there in the title. Yes, you've committed to that. Now, of course, it is a part of my greater personality that I try to combine those elements, being friendly and kind in person, but also assessing when something needs to be called out. And if you're writing in fear, what's the point? There's so many books out there. There's so many words. So I think that this has to be the attitude that you're looking to point out things that other people aren't pointing out. As for aggression and chess and poker and writing, I think in writing, it's very logical when you think about it. You have to be aggressive. You have to take risks. So that one can be a little bit difficult for me on the first draft, but I think it is a little bit easier for me to get to it because it's so illogical. Next, being aggressive in chess. That actually came pretty naturally to me, partly because Judith Polgar was always my favorite player and also because of I think my style as an athlete, as a games player, is very much like smash and go. I am better with interval training. I've never been an endurance type of person. And so if I can smash somebody in 25 moves, 30 moves, put in all my energy to those moves, I think that's a little bit more of my wheelhouse than, you know, the 100 move game. Just really my like natural tendencies to like have intense focus for a few hours rather than like really good focus for six hours. So aggression in chess came easily to me because it was the best way for me to win, frankly. And also, I never had to deal with a conflict between my personality in chess and my aggression because we don't talk to our opponent during the game. So I can channel all my aggression into trying to win without feeling like it's a personal statement to my opponent. Like I'm just trying to win. Whereas in poker, it can be more difficult for me because out there sometimes conversing with my opponents, particularly live poker, I don't have any issues in online poker, but live poker, I'm there, I'm, I'm having fun, I'm making friends at the table, and then you, know, you have to ruin somebody's day by three betting or check raising. And you know, of course, that's an exaggeration, but you're making them uncomfortable. You're making them feel bad. And if you're in the middle of a lovely conversation, that can be kind of, you know, take that extra effort to be able to execute it. And so I think that chess is actually a really good training ground for aggression because you don't have that combination of personality and play that you have in poker. And so you know what it should feel like when you're just trying to be aggressive because it's the best play. And I should also point out that you can be too aggressive in all games and you can be too contrarian in writing. It just kind of depends on you. If you're the type of person who's too aggressive, then you need to think about all these issues, but like flip them around. Writing about women, and I do a lot of women empowerment, I do tend to find that it's usually the problem of feeling discomfort with being aggressive that I deal with. 
but that's just a average. That doesn't mean that all women have that problem or that men might not have that problem too. So let's move on to another part in the introduction where I talk about chess as a gateway for women into other fields where we're underrepresented. And I say that when I started playing poker seriously, I was often the only female at the table. I preferred to see other women, but I also knew I could handle being the only one. The chessboard became a mirror for my mind, and I had to learn to like what I saw even when it wasn't perfect. That's right. When I started to play poker, I enjoyed events where I saw lots of women, like ladies' events, but it didn't feel that strange for me to be the only woman at the table in open events because I was so used to that type of ratio from chess. And so definitely I think chess is really helpful for women. But I I would like to clarify that I also preferred to have other women, as I say, because it made it more fun, an opportunity to make friends with other women. So there's a way in which I could be comfortable without them, but also really prefer the atmosphere when there is lots of women around. And, you know, hopefully we're getting closer to that in chess and poker. I do see some progress, even if it's not quite as speedy as I would like it to be. That final point about the chessboard being a mirror for my mind and having to like what I saw, even if it wasn't perfect. Well, yeah, that's something that can come hard for people like me. You know, chess and poker are not good arenas for perfectionists because it's all about making fewer mistakes than your opponent and trying to induce mistakes from your opponent, not about not making mistakes. And when you come from like an academic background where you've done pretty well, like I was always a good student I always tried to get A's. It can be difficult to make that transition to understand, yes, I'm going to make mistakes. I have a lot of weaknesses. These games are difficult. And so part of the point is to make mistakes, but I'm going to have to be confident and love the way that I think, even if it's not perfect. And that I think is a lifelong process for me. Another topic that I brought up in the book, which I think should really resonate with poker players, is the theme of jealousy. Of course, this can apply to all genders, but as I write in the book, female players are a minority in a very heteronormative subculture, and so top women are constantly being compared to each other. But that doesn't mean jealousy should displace friendship or even mentorship. A woman, regardless of her sexual orientation, ought to be able to recognize and embrace a wide variety of feelings toward her peers, whether it's admiration, indifference, or even attraction. When I've been bogged down with feelings of jealousy, I reflect on whether I'd really want to have fewer talented friends and colleagues. The immediate answer is, of course I love being surrounded by brilliant people. Going through that simple mental exercise reminds me that jealousy is often a signal to match my ambition to my work ethic. The negative emotion can be converted into a positive one. And I talk about specifically my rivalry with Grandmaster Irina Crush, the eight-time U.S. Women's Chess Champion, She was a few years younger than me, but she got started into chess earlier than me because she was a child prodigy. I wasn't really. I was more of like a teenage bloomer, just the way my chess career developed, which I go into more detail in the book. So she was younger than me, but always stronger, always stronger. But I did start to approach her level. So I would say she was within striking distance. It wasn't like Magnus Carlsen or Judah Polgar, who was hundreds and hundreds of points ahead of me. It was somebody who I could imagine beating on a good day in an opening that I loved, right? And I think that that really helped me having somebody that people compared me to that was a little bit better than me. 
And I'm sure she had somebody like that too, probably from another country since she was the best in the US. Maybe Alexander Kustenyuk or something like that. I'd have to ask her, but yeah, she probably had somebody as well. It just wasn't me. <laughs> so <laughs> in poker, I think we have a similar dynamics because there's fewer women. So we're constantly being compared to each other. And, you know, I love the rewards for women in poker, like Nadia Magnus, who won this year's GPI player of the year and Kaina England, who got so close, Vanessa Cade. It's normal, I think, to want to reward these incredible women of the game. But the flip side of that is when there's a little bit too much hype around like who's better between this woman and that woman and that woman. Because honestly, all the women just want to be the best poker players they can be, not compare themselves to another person only because of gender, right? I wrote an article about this for Poker Stars some years back where I talked about different ways to combat jealousy. And one I wrote was don't buy into the hype. So if you're a minority in the poker world and you're jealous of someone because they're similar to you and everybody's constantly comparing you to each other, you know, that's not about you. That's about other people comparing you to. That's not like a real thing. That's just what other people are saying and you can choose to ignore it. Develop your own relationships with competition and jealousy and success. Another tip I gave in that article was swapping. I mean, this is something that can't really apply to chess in the same way, but in poker, you already have this culture where people swap in tournaments. And of course you swap with your friends that you trust. And that can also block you a little bit from feeling super jealous of somebody who's very similar to you in style, bankroll, career, but somehow runs really well in some tournament and you have a piece of them. So not only are you your friend, but you get to share a little bit of the happiness as well financially. So you could up your stakes a little bit to provide yourself some emotional insurance, provided the uh, other party um, feels the same way. And another tip I gave is to think about, as I point out in the book, would you really want to have less talented friends? No, I mean, these are the people that encourage you to reach higher and, you know, give you inspiration. So... I think just going through that mental exercise and realizing that being surrounded by brilliance makes you more likely to succeed, even if in some iterations, in some weeks, you're the one cheering your friend on and feeling less successful than you probably actually are or less talented than you are. You know, at some point it's going to be you and the sun and you're more likely to get your day if you have people around you who are crushing. This applies to poker, chess, writing, to really anything you do. And I'll go through a specific case here where I played against Irina Grosh. Irina and I were among the favorites in the 1998 U.S. Women's Championship. We both won our first two games and were to play in round three. I was nervous. I knew this game would likely decide the tournament winner. Irina was well prepared, choosing a variation I had never seen before. Once again, she attacked me with verve. This time she was successful sacrificing a bishop to break open my king's protection. I was forced to resign on move 23. This was the beginning of a brilliant tournament streak for the 14-year-old Irina. She won eight games, drawing one and losing none. Anna Han and I, who were the second place and third place finishers, went shopping together afterwards, a slim consolation for me. For months, I had been training daily for the event and was dreaming of winning. Anna must have felt the same way. I'm happy at least, she said, that I scored the one draw against her. After such an amazing result, I imagined that Irina would be flooded with interview requests, invitations to strong tournaments, 
as well as lucrative sponsorships. I was jealous and worried that everyone would write off my own potential. I realized that I would have to work harder in order to get attention. And indeed, I had to work harder to become the U.S. women's chess champion in a field that would include Irina. It meant that I had to shoot higher. And I think that that just shows you the super specific case where it helps. The jealousy, you should feel lucky that you're close to someone and that you're competing with someone who you think is that awesome. Feel gratitude for it and that might help the pain go away a little bit if you're feeling pain and sadness that you're not as successful as one of your friends. I wrote about another funny game that I played against Irina that really dovetails with poker. Whenever I played with Irina, the stakes were raised, even if it was just in a casual weekend event, such as our encounter in Allentown, Pennsylvania in 1997. It was a large open tournament split up into different sections based on ratings. There were 200 players and less than 10% of those were women. Irina and I were the only women in the top section, but coincidentally, we were paired in the last round. Irina attacked me mercilessly. I defended well until I made one careless move. As soon as I took the hand off the piece, I nearly gasped. It was a terrible move to which Irina had a brilliant win. I am very expressive and was sure that my face would show her I had made a mistake. That was long before I took up poker. At that time, I had no prayer of hiding my emotions. So I got up from the board and paced, preparing myself to resign. Then I saw that my clock was ticking, but she had played a different move. She didn't see it. I jumped right back into my chair, stymied her attack, and proceeded to win. Well, this is an amazing example of how chess can be like poker. It's pretty rare. Normally in chess, you don't really need to keep a poker face. I mean, look at Garry Kasparov and just... Google Gary Kasparov expressions at the board and you're going to see some not very strong poker faces. The guy is the greatest of all time. Well, along with Magnus Carlsen, but both players are just extremely emotive at the board, especially Gary. So clearly you can be the greatest of all time and not have a poker face shows you that having a poker face is not that important. But once in a while, it does come in handy. And this example where you make a blunder and your opponent might not realize because the correct move is perhaps a difficult one to see. Maybe it's counterintuitive. Yeah, that is a very perfect example. And I've seen it in some elite competitions as well. I saw it happen to Fabiano Caruana once where I think he was on the side where he made a mistake and his face turned a little red. I think his opponent missed it anyway, though. So, you know, not only do you have to not have the poker face, but you also have to have your opponent see it and notice it and not think that it's for some other unrelated reason. And again, that's why it's not as important in chess as in poker, but it does come up from time to time. And Gary Kasparov, Magnus Carlsen, I mentioned that they're very expressive, but they also don't blunder that much. So I guess that helps as well. But in this case, I was just so upset at myself for making that move that Something about my breathing, even if I could keep a still face and not make an expression, it's like trying to find that balance. Like I felt like I'd either be exaggeratedly sit still or overly emotive. Like I'd either have no emotion and no breath and be holding my breath or I'd be like really upset. Like I don't think I would be able to find that like equilibrium that wouldn't alert her that I made a mistake. Now, probably I'm overly paranoid about that. She probably would have just been in the zone and not found it anyway. But like many strong chess players, I just got up from the board and walked around. Any of you who watched the world championship 
knows that that's something that Magnus Carlsen does a lot of as well. It's not against the rules. You're allowed to pace. And it's something that you'll see top players do a surprising amount, actually. Next, I'm going to talk about the way that cultures like chess and poker, because there are so few women, not enough women, not enough gender diversity, we often find an inordinate amount of attention on women's looks. And a lot of times it's complimentary, but almost always inappropriate. And in chess, one of the examples I used to zoom into this was a great legendary player, Alexander Kostanyuk. I mean, she is a grandmaster, former world champion. She's amazing at blitz. She plays excellently in women's tournaments. She plays really well in mixed competitions as well. She's about to play one of the strongest tournaments in the world indeed. And in her youth, she was also very successful in promoting the sport via her modeling. So she was a model and a chess grandmaster. She was called the Anna Kornikova of chess. And I talk about how this really presaged a lot of trends that we see in chess today, where many of the top players and certainly the top streamers are also on Instagram, modeling, playing up their feminine beauty, as well as their personalities and their chess skills. I really try to look at it from both sides and talk a little bit about how my experience in poker affected my feelings on this. Alexander Kostanyuk was way ahead of her time as social media, and especially Instagram, accelerated the pressure for female chess players to present themselves as both stunning and smart. Rather than allowing women the easy way out of just playing up their looks, it can make many work even harder. In addition to preparing opening variations, there's pressure to do your hair and makeup and wear a photogenic outfit. I encountered this pressure when I started playing poker, an even more superficial world than chess and just as male-dominated. Most of the top female players were both brilliant and stunning. I felt totally out of place with my frizzy brown hair, bare face, and flabby arms. Over the subsequent years, I spent a lot of time and money on my image to fit in. I'm sad to admit that it was probably worth it. In chess, poker, and media, the number of invitations and connections I made after I started caring more about my appearance increased. I now have a genuine interest in makeup, fitness, and fashion and see some of my previous discounting of it as a form of internalized misogyny that devalued traditionally feminine activities. And yet, what happens when the interest isn't genuine? When social media networks and their mysterious algorithms shape interests? Rather than allowing users to shape their own images, dangerous trends emerge. For instance, there's a strong correlation between increasing rates of depression and anxiety in young girls and social media usage. So in this whole section, I also talk about a lot of examples, like specific examples from chess where girls have been sexualized, even at very young ages, asked about outfits, asked about their makeup, and the way that trolls will incessantly chatter about female looks at tournaments when they're playing, something that you see both in chess and poker. I mean, this is a really big conversation, but I thought I had to draw out some of the key points. It's messed up to judge women who focus on their looks, partly because we live in a system that rewards it. Hello, capitalism. It can allow women to pursue parallel goals that are of great interest to society. And yet, it's also fair to think about ways we can improve systems to slowly but surely decrease the importance of looks, at least in our little worlds of chess and poker. I give a little insight into my own experience. I talk a little bit about poker, about how when I first started to play, of course I had my friends from chess, my brother Greg, my very good friend, Ben Johnson, who's now a famous podcaster for Perpetual Chess. And 
a few other friends from Chas. But outside that, I really did have trouble making friends. And I do think it was a little bit because I presented as very plain, you know, dare I say nerdy. And then I remember it being really easy to make friends a few years later when I had eyelashes and glossy red hair and started going to the gym more. I mean, you could say it was a combination of confidence and appearances. And I think that's probably about right. So maybe I became more confident because I was more fit and more engaged in my appearance. But looking back, I can say that I wish the world was a bit less superficial. And yet I still wish that I'd started caring earlier. These ideas don't contradict each other. And so I tried to be really mindful of that in the writing of this chapter and the rewriting of it. And it's a difficult balance to strike. Respect for women who are doing what they can do to be successful and to let their voices be heard and to make change in the world and to achieve as much as they can, sometimes in a short period of time, because they often want to take a break for having kids. And then also how we can change the world to be less obsessed with what people look like, especially in worlds like chess and poker, which are so much about what's inside your head and your brain. And I end this chapter with a bit of a bang. Grandmaster Susan Polgar points out, we all have different limits as to how far it is acceptable to promote chess through feminine beauty. Promoting attractive chess players is not in itself objectionable. After all, much of Gary Kaspar's fame in the mainstream press is because of his confident swagger and luminous energy. Magnus Carlsen is especially photogenic, and his chiseled jawline was featured in advertisements for the fashion company G-Star Raw. However, there is a line with male players that is not crossed. Journalists and fans don't go around commenting on the size of Kasparov's cock. In the chess world, the sexuality of the top male players is private and implied, while discussion of a woman's sexuality is open to all. So yeah, I went out on a limb there because as a writer, If you can come up with a phrase that can really make people feel something, like feel what it's like to be a woman in a world where people are constantly talking about your appearance, then like that's a phrase that you have to use, even if it's going to offend some people. So when I came up with this alliterative phrase commenting on the size of Kasparov's cock, you know, part of me was like, I should take that out. I can say that in a different way that is like less aggressive and, you know, less graphic. But also, would that make the same impact? And if the answer is no, I felt I had to take that risk. The next part of the book that I wanted to bring up is Diana Lanny. She's a previous grid guest. So Diana was a great chess player and also what people called the it girl of chess. She loved to party. She loved to go out. She was very popular. And she was playing chess in the same clubs that Walter Tevis played in at the time that he was writing The Queen's Gambit. So he wrote the book that the hit Netflix series was based on. And Diana was the only strong women playing in these clubs and parks at those times in downtown New York City. So certainly many people believe, including me, including Diana, that she was part of the inspiration for the character of Beth Harmon, because Beth Harmon certainly liked to have fun as well as be a boss chess player, crushing all the guys and gals. Here's a part where she talked about poker and how chess led her to poker in the book. In Northern California, Diana worked as a poker dealer, a completely legitimate job. Diana still speaks fondly of poker. Poker is a very deep game, and it's something you can use to make money all your life. Diana feels that chess led her to more lucrative activities in poker and bookmaking and saved me from choosing between the drudgery of nine to five minimum wage work 
and the humiliation of stripping and prostitution. So Diana, unfortunately, felt like she was dumb before she picked up chess. And you hear this a lot, especially with people with a learning disability, with reading or with math, that a lot of people end up judging intelligence, I think, by verbal and arithmetic skills when kids are young. And there's so many other ways to be intelligent. And chess is really not about either of those. It's very visual. So sometimes people who didn't realize they were smart realize it when they start playing chess. And that is a beautiful thing to behold. And in Diana's case, she explains how this led her to poker. She came up from a poor and abusive family. And she really felt that if it wasn't for chess and realizing that she was smart and that she could be a great games player, backgammon, sports analytics, I guess in those days they called it bookmaking. (laughs) And uh, other things, poker dealing, poker playing, teaching chess as well. She was able to craft a living from all these things. Today, chess is big business, so you don't even need to go into overlapping games in order to make money. But in Diana's day, there weren't so many jobs in chess, so it really makes sense that she saw those parallel worlds as lifesavers for her. Diana is one of the most fascinating characters in the book. The final part I want to talk to you about is where I discuss how I perceive poker before I started to play, because I was a late bloomer in poker. I mean, this is kind of a theme in my life. You know, I got into chess later than most prodigies. I kind of got into poker after the chess world already discovered it. A late adopter, I'm not ashamed. It takes me a little time to, you know, get that click. And so I talk about that moment where I was playing chess and I was also observing many of my friends playing poker and leading a different type of life. The training stopped after five days because I wanted to go back to Brooklyn to figure out where to live. I was also throwing a farewell party for my friend Ben, who was moving to California. Ben is my former high school teammate who had recently given up chess for poker. Many of my friends from chess, including my brother, had shifted their focus to poker, hoping that their intellectual skills, no doubt in part developed from their experience in chess, might make them rich at the card table. At the time, Greg was earning a good living playing online, giving lessons in his favorite game format, sit and go, and occasionally flying off to play in tournaments. I later fell in love with poker too, and it's beautifully embedded math and psychology. Before poker, I didn't understand much about finances and negotiation, but after several years of playing, I started to see how poker could be a prism to analyze important issues of class and gender, in the same way chess is. Women aren't nurtured to take risks in the same way men are. But poker made me realize that whether it was chess, cards, or writing, taking no risks is the biggest risk of all. In 2015, I joined Team Poker Stars and traveled all over the world to play chess with cards, from Monaco to Prague. In 2021, I joined the board of Poker Power, an organization that aims to teach a million women poker to accelerate their progress in business politics and finance, mirroring my own goals to lift girls and women through chess. Yeah, so sitting goes, yes, that was what my brother taught me to get into the game soon after I finally decided to give poker a go. I think what I want to leave you with is this idea of no risk being the biggest risk of all. This is something I continually learn and my understanding of it continues to deepen. The idea is that the lack of growth is a kind of death. And perhaps for people who understand finance and went to business school, this is like obvious, but to me, I kind of had to learn it the hard way. 
So as you get older, you realize that if you are putting your money in this savings account and it's getting half a percent interest, you're actually losing money because you're not beating out on inflation, right? But that's true with so many things in life. You need to grow because you might have a little bit less energy in later years. You might have increasing healthcare costs. You might have increasing costs of living because of children and other dependents. So it's not like, oh, okay, it's okay that I'm not growing. No, it's not okay. I mean, of course, there are times in your life where you're lucky to be standing still, where it's an incredible accomplishment. But I think that if you can grow, that is what you want, especially for those periods of life where you have that energy, where you have those connections. And it took me a little while to really understand that. And that's why I'm so excited about the work that PokerStars does to promote gender diversity in the sport. And of course, joining Poker Power. Because I think that taking risks for women, it's not only that it's not nurtured, but it's also punished more greatly when you fail. And so it's actually logical for women to take fewer risks, right? If you have more dependents, if you're planning on getting pregnant and having a baby and you might have a career gap or uh, employers that are scared of hiring you because you're maybe going to have another baby. Well, all of these things make it even more logical to be risk averse. So it's not just about making women less risk averse. It's also about making the world set up for us to take more risks, right? And to punish risks that we take less and to reward risks more. And so I I think that's key for me. Like I constantly am trying to go beyond thinking about the individual and thinking about things more broadly, not just, oh, how do we make this individual more risk taking? How do we make the world set up for them to take risks so that they can have the types of insights that risk often bring and the type of upside? Sure, sometimes you take a risk and you fail and then you just go back to what you were doing before. But there's also a lot of people who have this glorious upside, which helps change the world. And we want more of that, particularly from women, because we have so much insight to offer that might have been overlooked in the past. And I think that's what I want people to get from Chess Queens, that I'm writing about the top women players of all time. I'm talking about my own story in chess, but it could really apply to so many things. It could apply to poker. It could apply to sports where women are underpaid and under celebrated. It could apply to so many fields where women have not taken up half of the space that we might want them to. And a final note, because I know that a lot of grid listeners are men. One thing that I think is really important about gender diversity for men is that it's really unfortunate when men don't have female friends and female role models and there's not gender diversity for them. It's not fun for them either for many reasons. If they're heterosexual, there's like no way for them to kind of combine searching the dating pool with their hobby. There's also something about female friendship that might give them something that their male friends don't. And it's going to be hard to do that in a world with very few women. And then also, particularly in chess, where you have a lot of kids, I definitely like to see boys inspired by women as well as just by men. So to me, some of the stories in this book, I think, should be particularly powerful to men. One case that really drives us home is the Ugandan chess champion Fiona Mutesi. She was the chess champion that the movie Queen of Catway was based on, and she beat the top boy in her chess club at some point. And the boy immediately quit because he didn't feel like it was okay to lose to a girl. Now, who loses there? Now, who loses there? The boy loved chess, and now he quit because he lost to a girl. That's punishing boys, isn't it? He's just a kid, so where did he get this idea, right? 
And I think that that's something to consider, that having more respect and admiration for women, it helps men also. So once again, thank you guys for listening so much. I really appreciate it. And if you enjoyed hearing me narrate it, I did the audiobook, so you can check that out. All the appropriate links are in the show notes. Thank you very much to our sponsors, Poker Stars, and I will catch you guys next time. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Grid, sponsored by Poker Stars. Please subscribe, review, and tell your friends about your favorite episode. Till next time, as we count down 169 hands. No one ever bust. They say I'm lucky. Oh, no, no need to bluff. With all the cheap tricks up my sleeve. Yeah, I got talent. You won't see me, see me stunting. No, never, never stagger. Believe it, I'm the real thing. Yeah.